Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 233 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we speak with Robbie Kelman-Baxter, author of The Forever Transaction. How to Build a Subscription Model So Compelling Your Customers Will Never Want to Leave. Now, longtime listeners may remember that Robbie has been on the show before to talk about her previous book, The Membership Economy. And in that episode, which we'll be sure to link to in the show notes, we had a really interesting conversation about how, in today's world, it's possible for almost any organization in any industry to turn ordinary customers into lifelong members. I had the pleasure of participating in that first conversation with Robbie, but Jeff, it was your turn this time. What do you and Robbie discuss? Well, as you know, Robbie has a new book out, but we do take a little bit of time to revisit briefly the core ideas of her previous book, The Membership Economy. Back when Robbie wrote that book, she really had to try to explain the concept to make it clear that a relationship-driven subscription model was an opportunity that applied to just about every business, not just to traditional membership organizations. Now, fast forward five years, and most businesses get the concept and are trying to figure out how to actually implement it. So the forever transaction is really about taking action, about how to do it. And specifically, Robbie discusses how to launch, how to scale, and how to lead a membership-oriented business over time. And we explore each of those areas and get into some really useful exchanges around topics like pricing and the relationship between community and subscription. Listeners will definitely find a number of insights and tips in this conversation that they'll be able to put to work immediately. So what reflection question did you come up for this episode, Jeff? And as a reminder, listeners, you can find the reflection questions in the show notes, which will be available at leadinglearning.com slash episode 233. Well, first, at the heart of the forever transaction concept is the forever promise. So as you're listening, put some focused thought into what your forever promise is. What is it your members or customers really wish you would do and keep doing? And are you using the right headline benefits to attract those people to you? Then second, as Robbie and I discussed the scale and lead sections of the book, we focus in on LinkedIn as an example. So I'd like to offer what's both a reflection question and a homework assignment of sorts. Take some time to really study how LinkedIn works and then ask, What lessons from LinkedIn's model can we apply to our learning business? Well, great. Let's keep that LinkedIn homework assignment and the forever promise in mind as we roll the interview with Robbie Kelman-Baxter.
Hello, and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Jeff Cobb, and today my conversation partner is Robbie Kelman-Baxter. Robbie is a strategy and marketing expert with more than two decades of experience and a very long list of blue-chip clients. She's a sought-after keynote speaker and author of the best-selling book, The Membership Economy, which Salisa discussed with her back in episode 58. She's now back with a new book titled The Forever Transaction, How to Build a Subscription Model So Compelling Your Customers Will Never Want to Leave. And I know that's something that uh, many of our listeners are definitely looking for. I'm looking forward to discussing the book as well as the whole concept of the membership economy and the forever transaction. But first, Robbie, welcome back to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thanks for having me back, Jeff. Well, it's so great to be catching back up with you again. I know, you know, since you published the the original book, the, the membership economy, uh, you know, a lot of water under the bridge uh, since then. But before we dive into that whole membership economy concept and and, and the forever transaction, your, your your latest book, could you share just a bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah. Um, so I've been a strategy consultant um, for the last. Uh, 18, 19 years. And for about 16 years of that, or maybe a little bit more, I've been specifically focused on helping businesses that want to build a forever transaction with the people they serve using tactics like subscription pricing, like digital community, uh, like freemium pricing models. Uh, and so the, the range of organizations, um, you know, is very, very broad from, um, you know, software companies here in Silicon Valley, where I live, to, you know, blue chip traditional companies, as you mentioned, to, uh, you know, professional societies and associations, all of whom share a desire uh, to build an ongoing and known relationship with the people that they serve. And so, I mean, you refer to this uh, both as a concept and, you know, as a, as a title to uh, your, your last book as really a, a membership economy. Um, I mean, it's, it's more than just a business model. In other words, uh, it's, it's a whole economy. Can you, can you give a little bit more uh, of an overview of, you know, what, why are we now in a period where membership is, is such an integral part of, of business and, and, and really, you know, represents an economy? Yeah, well, we've we've always wanted connection. Um, you know, those are that's that's basic human nature, right? We, Maslow said, you know, once our basic physiological needs are met, we want um, we want to reduce risk, we want to increase our sense of belonging, we want to um, be held in high regard by our peers and recognized for our contributions, and then ultimately we want to be freed from those more mundane tasks so that we can achieve our full potential. So what better way to relieve people from their more mundane tasks than by promising them that you're going to handle those problems or those challenges for them on an ongoing basis? So, so a business model that um, has forever in it um, and that treats the customers as members, that is, treats them as known entities that are engaged for the long term and to whom you have a higher obligation of trust, is going to change the kind of relationship. Um, and it's the kind of relationship that human beings want, whether it's human beings as consumers buying on their own account or human beings buying on account of their companies or organizations. We just want to feel a sense of being known, being recognized, 
um, having our needs met on an ongoing basis and the kind of trust that's required for that kind of ongoing relationship. And so that's why we all like it as consumers, but businesses like it because of the recurring revenue and the predictability and the ability to gather data, which allows organizations to more thoughtfully plan for the future. Um, and the reason that it's happening right now, when, when both sides would obviously really have always wanted it, is because there's an enabling infrastructure now. There's a, there's a technology um, that enables these kind of trusted relationships digitally, um, everything from you know, declining costs of creating and delivering great content, like what you're doing here, um, the declining cost of, of serving that content out to the world, the declining cost of the ability to communicate and have community digitally, and the ability to manage remote payments on a subscription basis. Um, that um, plus an understanding and acceptance in the market of recurring revenue payments has you know created like an explosion in how companies are connecting with the people they serve, how associations are rethinking their models, um, and what the expectations are in the, in the market. It's just a whole new way of thinking about your business. And you just used the word explosion. I was going to ask uh, <laughs> you, you were somebody who you know was was recognizing this and thinking about it and writing about it. Uh, Early on, I'm, I'm assuming you know since the first book came out that you you've probably seen a lot of growth out there. Um, and I'm wondering, a is that true? I'm, I'm sure it is, but uh, that gets you to confirm that. Um, but then, b who who's doing this really well at this point? You know, maybe some some different types of examples of companies or organizations that uh, seem to have really gotten it. Yeah. So so five years ago, so I've been I've been focused in this space for more than you know, more than 15 years, probably about 17 years. I'm, I'm trying to do the math in my head. Um, the membership economy book came out five years ago in 2015. And I wrote it because even though I was seeing similarities across all of my clients, regardless of their industry, um, in terms of the value and power of subscription pricing, um, the opportunities afforded by a freemium model, which is, you know, some people get something free forever. Other people pay a premium to get slightly more or better or more support forever. Um, I was seeing it. And yet when I talked to executives and entrepreneurs, they would say, I don't really understand how this applies to my business. Um, I don't think it's for me. So I wrote the book to say, hey, it's for you. Hey, it's for everybody, any business, any organization that is trying to build an ongoing relationship that hopes that the person who buys from them today might come back and buy tomorrow again. Um, and any business where uh, that individual, that customer has choices. Um, for any business that meets those two criteria, this is a really good business model to consider for a whole bunch of reasons. That's all I wanted to say in the membership economy. People didn't get it, and I tried to explain it. Five years later, we are in a totally different world. Um, every single company, every single association, every single nonprofit, um, every single small business owner, every single solopreneur, thought leader, subject matter expert is trying to figure out how do I build a forever transaction with my customers? How do I get subscription revenue? How do I build community? Everybody's trying to figure it out. So this new book is really about how to do it. 
and it really goes into the trenches versus the first book five years ago, which was much more setting the stage and explaining what was happening. Well, so let's let's turn to this uh, that that core concept of the forever transaction, which was in the membership economy, but now is you know as you said, really the focus of this book, and and how do you make that happen, um, and maybe get some um, some examples as we go along, and that that you you kind of uh, chunk the the book into three major parts: uh, launch, scale, and lead. And at the, at the core of the the launch area, at least as I read it, really is this idea of the forever promise um, and, and having that forever promise. And I, I think that's what a lot of, as you just said, you know, businesses of different types are, are trying to figure out right now. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, w- what that forever promise means and, and how should these, uh, whether it's a solopreneur or an association or, or a huge business, how should they be going about figuring out this forever promise that's going to be at the core uh, of that forever transaction? Yeah. So, so first of all, um, you know, a forever, I'll I'll define a a forever promise is that underlying commitment that an organization makes to the people they serve for an, on on an ongoing basis. So it usually goes like this, as long as you do this, I promise that I will continue to help you achieve this goal or solve this problem. So, you know, if you're a doctor, you know, hopefully the forever promise is I'm going to do everything I can to help you have more healthy minutes in your life, right? And um, almost every professional association, the forever promise is we're going to help you thrive in this profession throughout your career, and we're going to protect the health of the profession. Mm. Um, that's that's pretty much the first, you know, so, so those are two examples of very, you know, mission-driven Organizations. Most associations already are, are quite mission driven and quite, you know, they have this promise. Um, in, in contrast, you know, there's a lot of businesses uh, that are much more transactional and don't really have a forever promise. Like we sell soap, that <laughs> there's no real promise there other than we'll keep selling you soap. Right. Um, and, and a forever promise for that kind of organization, what I would advise them to do is take a step back and say, what is it that your members wish you would do? So, um, last year, I spoke at um, at the AOX conference, the uh, Association of Oil Chemists, which are the people who make soap. And um, there were a lot of companies like Unilever and Procter and Gamble and soap manufacturers from all over the world. And one of the things that we talked about is that most people don't really, you know, that buy soap don't really want to buy soap. They want clean clothes. They want clean hands. They want to be in a you know, contagion-free environment. <laughs> uh, and, and so what else could the organization do if they looked through that lens? All of a sudden, you start to see all these other opportunities to layer in value. Mm. So, you know, an example in, um, in the association world um, that I featured in the Forever Promise, or in the Forever Transaction, is the Healthcare Financial Management Association, HFMA, uh, you know, has a long storied tradition. I think they're, you know, 75 years old. Uh, you know, they, they help the, the person responsible for the money in, in hospital systems and healthcare systems. So the, the accountants, the financial managers, the CFO, and so on. Um, and they, they had a great mission, but they took a step back and said, what's the best way to deliver on our promise today? Um, and then they went through a whole series of exercises and activities to 
kind of rethink the best way to deliver on their promise, given you know what their members need today, given what else is available today, and given all of the technologies um, that are that are at their fingertips to to recreate uh, their offerings. Well, I like that you uh, noted too that they took the time to to step back um, and I, you know think about it to reflect. HFMA, a great organization. We've done some work with them as well, and they do tend to do that. I think so often we're just sort of in the grind of the day-to-day, and we're not really thinking about uh, the bigger picture. So you have to do that. And then you also emphasize, well, I think I think for a lot of businesses, it, it, it may not be crystal clear out of the gate what that forever promise is. Uh, there may need to be some experimentation, um, some learning that, that happens to, to basically be able to to, to, to tweak it over time and, and to get it really, really aligned with who it is you're, you're trying to, to serve. Is that, am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the hard thing, I mean, for, for organizations that have been around a long time, the hard thing about the forever promise is, you know, usually when you're starting out, you're crystal clear, you know, um, we're going to help, you know, there's this gap in the market, this group is underserved, we have a solution for them, boom. But then what happens over time is, you know, somebody that doesn't fit in your your original best member model, some, somebody that doesn't fit that model signs up or buys your product and becomes a vocal communicator. And so you start, you take a sharp left turn to serve that person or that small group's needs. And then before you know it, you have all of these, you know, I think of it as a tree where you have all of these volunteer branches that are growing in every direction and kind of taking energy from the core tree. And so you have to prune. And that's very painful for, especially for associations that have been around a long time. Uh, to say, you know, you can't serve everybody equally well. So you can either decide, and this is the, honestly the only choice, you can either do a mediocre job for everybody or you can do a great job for a smaller group mm-hmm. or do a great job for a smaller goal. Right. But you can't, you, you know, when you, when you look at a model and you say something like, we want to help these people throughout their profession and help the health of the profession, then you get into this question of, well, there's so many subsets of the profession. So which ones are we really focused on? Um, there's so many stages in someone's career, you know, just getting out of school, uh, you know, I'm thinking about paying off my loans and getting my first job and finding a mentor, but, you know, into my fifties and beyond, I'm thinking about succession planning, retirement, uh, selling my business, what have you, you know, who are you going to be optimizing for, um, is really, really hard. And, um, and especially when you have a, you know, a governing body, of members who, you know, are focused on their own interests and not as concerned about the the needs of tomorrow's members, um, it just gets really messy. And I would think too, um, this may be in some ways the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, you know, you might have your your solo subject matter expert, your solo entrepreneur in our world, uh, who you know wants to get out there and, and serve a market. And very often, they're in highly competitive markets. You know, it might be somebody who's a, a marketing consultant, um, or even a you know a yoga con- instructor. You know, where there are just a lot of people yeah. out there doing it, and they they have to figure out a forever promise that's that stands them out in the market. Cause there are a lot of people out there, you know, well, they may not get the whole, uh, idea of membership, you know, so that may single you out in the first place, but, uh, but a lot of them do at this point, a lot of, as you said, they're, they're trying to figure out the membership thing. So, you know, how do they come up with that, that forever promise that's different from, 
from you know the the the, the potentially thousands of others who might be you know trying to, to serve that same market niche. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. So so being focused is really critical, and for um, the um, edupreneurs, the solo solopreneurs that are in education. Um, I think there's there's a challenge. I mean, there's a couple of things. One is everybody thinks their own content is unique, mm-hmm. right? I do this special kind of yoga, so it's very different. Or, or I do yoga in a much more um, holistic way, thinking about the whole body or the whole person, and that person is more fitness oriented. Um, but a lot of times, those nuances are lost, right? Um, on the on the prospect. So this is a really important thing: is that you need in your forever promise. Uh, you need to also have features in your offering that are triggers for the right people to join. Your headline benefit. So, for example, if I'm in the yoga business, uh, you know, saying like my my uncle is a is a yoga instructor and he specializes in people uh, into their 70s. Right, his yoga is you know it, anybody can take it, but it's really optimized for people who need to be gentle with their bodies. Um, who have a history of being athletes and lots of, you know, and have to move are told that they have to move to yoga um, or something like that. So a very particular type of person. And that's the, the headline that attracts people. They're like, oh, that's me. That's exactly me. But then what keeps them, uh, what I think of as the hook benefits are the things that a lot of instructors want to lead with. Like I'm really caring. I mm. follow through. My content is better than other people's content. Those are not headline benefits. If I said to you, read my newspaper, my content is better, you won't believe me. You'll be like, eh, you know, the free news is just as good as Robbie's really expensive paid news. But once you experience my paid news, you might say, oh, it is better. But you yeah. can't know that until you experience it. So you can't lead with it. You have to lead with something that gets them in the door. That's yeah, great, great advice. Um, I definitely want to yeah, call that out for, for listeners to, to pay attention to that. Uh, whether you're that solo uh, entrepreneur or whether you're the big organization, that's, that's still the case that you, uh, you really have to find that uh, unique aspect of, of what you do. Now, I know the, the question that probably comes up for you all the time, and it's part of this, this launch uh, aspect of things. We, we may end up spending most of our time here just because I think it's so foundational to get this stuff right. But uh, a question that will always come up is around pricing. Uh, you know, we have a lot of listeners right now, even even before we got into the current situation where a lot of people are scrambling to increase what they're doing online, they were already wrestling with, okay, can we put together a, some sort of subscription packaging around our education? And is it is it just our online education? Is it just our on-demand education? Can we combine our uh, face-to-face and our online um, into a, into an offering. We've seen uh, an organization do that, but but they're always wrestling with, okay, how then do we think about pricing on this? If we're going to go with this forever transaction, what, what does that look like from a pricing standpoint? What What's your perspective? What kind of advice do you give around pricing? Yeah. So, so the, the, the basic advice that I give, the very general advice is to remember that the more complex your pricing options, the less your customers are going to trust you. Mm. Um, and the reason is it's, it's, it's natural, right? If, if I see a long list of options, I'm thinking to myself, okay, which one is right for me? It's hard for me to tell. Um, I don't want to pay too much, but I want to get the right combination of benefits. I don't know if I'm going to use that one or that one. How do I decide? And then, you know, there's a, there's a lot of research among, you know, kind of business psychologists about how 
people get overwhelmed and they decide not to buy anything. Right. So you want to make it easy for your buyers to buy. Um, that would be the first thing I would say. Now, that, that being said, you may have reasons to have a more complex offering and that's fine. But I would encourage you to start, especially if you're a smaller organization, by trying to keep things simple. Um, uh, this, the second thing that I, that I would do is say, who are you designing this offering for? Um, and be really clear. So, so for example, if you're designing an offering for um, somebody just graduating from school and joining an association for the first time, let's say, um, who wants to just be uh, have access to community and learning and growth, and they're like, this is the thing, that, this is what adulting looks like, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, I want to be responsible. Well, then you want to optimize your combination of offerings for that person. And you want to price it in such a way that it is a no-brainer for them. Uh, the second thing that, that I think people don't always consider like sort of a guiding principle is that most products, especially learning products, are not highly elastic, do not have a lot of demand elasticity. And what that means, it's, a, it's, a, it's an economics term, and what it means is in your business – if you raise the price by a dollar, do you lose a small percentage of members with every dollar that your price goes up? And do you, does your demand increase with every dollar that the price goes down? So something like potato chips is very elastic. Like if potato chips are on sale, people buy more of them and they eat more of them that week. They consume more if the price goes down. If potato chips are expensive, you're like, eh, we can do without it this week. Um, tuna fish? less elastic. If, if you eat tuna fish every day for lunch, you're going to buy it if it's 99 cents, if it's $1.19, if it's $1.29 most of the time. And if the price goes down, you might buy more, but you're not going to use more because there's only so much tuna fish we're going to eat. Um, most educational content is more like tuna fish than like salty snacks. So a lot of times when the, when, 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 People aren't buying your educational content. The assumption is the price is too high. Drop it by 10%. And companies do this before they have any evidence that dropping the price by a little bit is going gonna, is gonna to do the trick. In most cases, when people aren't buying educational content, it's because they don't think it's valuable. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if it's $10 or $9 or $11. I don't want it. So rather than dropping the price by a dollar to see if that drives demand, try to understand why people aren't buying it. Well, you, you've identified what is just such a central problem uh, in the, you know, the, the entire community that we serve that, um, that very often people want to discount, uh, they want to cut prices, uh, they don't necessarily understand, as, as you were talking about, the, the elasticity or inelasticity of what they're offering. Um, I mean, there's even an argument when, when people aren't buying um, that raising your prices makes sense because raising prices can actually raise value perception in and of itself. Um, you know, I mean, the value obviously still has to be there and you still have to solve any value problems that are there. But uh, um, uh, great, great, uh, great perspective on, on pricing there. What, one last item I'll ask you about in this... Um, uh, launch area, and it may be a good segue into talking about scale, um, which is the next big section of the book. But um, how do you think about the relationship between community and subscription? Because I, I think of those as, as two different things. Um, subscription to me feels more like kind of the, the business model, or maybe membership is the business model. 
community is, you know, has a little bit more of a, a I guess, a human or an interactive uh, emotional aspect to it. Um, what's the power in, in, in bundling the two of those together? Yeah. So I think of, like you said, I, th- I think of community as a feature or benefit um, of many business models, you know, buy from us. And one of the things you get is access to our terrific community of whatever's, you know, practitioners, uh, other users, customers, experts, whatever. Um, It can be an incredibly powerful element of, of a business model of a value proposition, but it's, it's, tricky it, it actually has real costs associated with it i think a lot of organizations just throw up a community platform in fact in a lot of cases the technology platform that a that an organization purchases and is using has a feature called community mm-hmm. and they turn that on and they just you know wait for the people to come and have meaningful respectful dialogue and that does not happen um, if you want to have community as an element of your value proposition. Early on in the digital community, you're going to need to do a lot of work. You're going to need a moderator that is somebody on your team that is paying attention to what's being posted, encouraging people to post kind of backroom conversations. Like you have a conversation with a member, the member says something really interesting. The moderator says, you know, I'd love it if you posted that on the site. Could you post that today? And then when that person posts, calling three people who you know would have interesting comments and saying, hey, you know, Jeff posted something this morning. I'd love for you to comment on it. And and you really have to be that deliberate early on um, to start to nurture the community. And at the same time, as people do start to participate, the moderator needs to make sure that the tone is what you want. And you have to nip bad stuff in the bud. Um, you know, in a known community, it's unlikely that people are going to be, you know, what they call trolls, you know, really saying horrible, horrible, vulgar things. But people can be really mean. You see it all the time on, you know, your neighborhood uh, listservs and uh, certainly on, on Facebook and, and, and other places. So you need to really manage for that. And if somebody is out of line, you need to reprimand them. You need to delete their content. You need to publicly let the rest of the community know that you're not going to stand for that because that's what the community needs in order to be confident enough to share their ideas and point of view. So to summarize, community can be a tremendous asset to a business model because it creates content that the company, the organization, isn't creating themselves. Right. And it creates connections that aren't um, accessible. They can't be replicated. You can't, a competitor can't copy a community. Once it's started, it's very sticky. But anyone thinking about building a community needs to recognize, you know, it's kind of like buying a puppy. The hard part is not getting the <laughs> software to have the community. It's taking care of it. Right. Great. Yeah. Excellent points. And I, and I raised, I said that community might be a good segue into talking about scale because at least in my mind, you know, if, if you get that community working, you know, if you actually get the, the people, uh, your, your customers, your members creating content, engaging with each other, you can, you can start to, to head towards that kind of flywheel effect that really does give you the basis for scale. But, um, but I'll, I'll back up from there and not, not make too many assumptions because I, I want to ask you, 
you know, let's say you've launched, you know, you've, you've, you've got this forever promise, you've got your forever transaction going, you're, you're starting to get uptake on it. What does it then take to, to scale? Um, and, and what, you know, on the other hand, interferes with, with scaling this type of model? Yeah, so there's there's several issues with scale. Um, you know, a lot of organizations, whether you're uh, that that um, entrepreneur who's like, uh, you know, I'm going to launch this subscription around my expertise, and then people start signing up for it, and most of it is being done by you, you know, sending out emails and you know doing like group chats and things, and then you realize, wow, this is growing. Um, or if you're a big company and you're introducing a membership, a subscription as one element, and you're not sure if it's going to work and you want to see what happens. Once you have evidence in either case that this is working, that the, the, the targeted best member is joining, is engaging, is giving you good feedback, you want to think about both the technical scaling. So what kind of platform are you using? What kind of software? What kinds of business processes are you using to bring in a new member, bill them, onboard them, show them how to use all the benefits that you provide, help them, you know, get onto the community, help them, you know, get all the value that they need. Um, you need to do all of that technical stuff, all of that process and operation stuff. You also need to think about your metrics. So how are you going to judge success? Um, how are you going to recognize if the business is, you know, all systems go, or if there's a problem to take care of, what are the right metrics? Um, what is your process going to be for pricing? Because a lot of times when you're starting out, you're experimenting with pricing and you're kind of, some people are there for free because they're beta customers and some people are paying, you know, way too much because, you know, for some reason they, they signed up that way and mm -hmm. you're trying to, to do that. And then the most important one is culture. Uh, you need to make sure that as you hire people or as you bring other people from the organization into your little experiment, that everybody that's joining you has that same member mindset and that same long-term focus on the health of the business and on the well-being of the customer. So who's doing this well that you've seen? I mean, scaling with this uh, membership model. Yeah, well, so, so the big three in my world that I sort of point to all the time, um, and they're digital natives, um, LinkedIn, hmm. uh, Amazon, Netflix. Those are the those are the big three. Like they do, you know. I'm sure there are some things that they're doing wrong, but they do so many things right. The way that they market, the way they onboard, the way that they um, engage members, the way they deepen the value over time, the way they're continuously iterating with their offerings, the clarity of who they're serving and what their promise is. Um, they're three very different organizations, uh, but. But those would be the the, the ones that I think are, are best on on that end of the spectrum. And, and, you know, one thing I'll call attention to since this is a learning show is, you know, LinkedIn LinkedIn bought lynda.com several years ago. lynda.com, mm -hmm. you know, the online learning platform. And they've been, you know, slowly but surely integrating that into their, you know, the LinkedIn mission is um, to help professionals thrive and stay connected throughout their career. And what do we need to thrive and stay connected? You know, if not education, everybody needs that. Um, so this was kind of a perfect marriage and the way that they've integrated that acquisition uh, is I'm, I'm just, you know, kind of blown away by it. 
I, I agree. It's been extremely interesting to to watch uh, how they've been doing that over the years. And I mean, in a way, they're sort of a I don't know if you call them a, a mega association or a meta association, um, <laughs> and the, the way that they maybe it's both. Um, but yeah, they really they've they've gotten that connection between. Um, ongoing sort of formalized education and career, the community and, and career, the informal connections and the informal learning and career. I mean, you really could just spend a lot of time if you're if you're in the education business, if you're in the learning business, just studying what LinkedIn is doing. And that might be a great segue. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned those three examples because um, all three of those, Amazon, LinkedIn, Netflix, I think of as, yes, they have successfully scaled. They now are really, you know, the, the they are certainly the market leaders um, in their markets, and they, um, they they feel like just leaders in general relative to this overall model. And you know, the the, the other the, the third big section of your book uh, is lead. Um, so that I mean, that does seem challenging. You you launch, you scale, but this is the type of thing that uh, it feels like could easily fizzle uh, over time. Um, what does it take to, to lead effectively and to, to, to maintain and grow a, a market leadership position? Yeah. So, so, you know, in some ways, those three companies, even though they're the, the, the big, uh, the big gorillas in the space, they're babies, right? They've only been around for, you know, 20 odd years uh, or less. Um, and there are subscription businesses and membership businesses that have been around for, for dozens, if not hundreds of years. Um, and I think about newspapers, professional societies, gyms. Uh, those are examples of membership organizations that need to really, that, that struggle with staying current. Um, you know, some of the, the pitfalls I see with, with organizations that have really well-established member mindsets Number one is that they forget about the new members and they focus on the existing members. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everybody talks about customer centricity. It's like motherhood and apple pie. But when you think about your members, you can't just think about today's members. You have to think about tomorrow's members as well and make sure that they have a voice at the table. Um, I've seen a lot of organizations fail because of this, you know, the the organ, you know, the association that told me that they couldn't let the guy who specializes in sending out faxes go. We we wanted to move him to the digital side because that was the future. It seems really obvious. They said no for two reasons. Number one, many of our older members really like getting faxes, and we need to be member centric. And number two, this guy doesn't want to do digital. He only wants to do faxes. He's a faxing specialist, and we treat our employees like family. And you know, both of those things sort of sound okay at first, but if you dig into it, you realize that number one, you have to think about tomorrow's members with as much love as you think about the people that are here today. And the second thing is a company, a, an association, the employees are not a family. Um, you know, my uncle's a little crazy, but I can't cut him off, right? Mm. <laughs> He's still my uncle. Family is family. A team is a group of people that look out for each other and take care of each other to achieve a, a, a common goal. And if somebody on the team is not contributing to that goal and you've tried to work them in different positions and with different strategies, you know, and they're unwilling to change, you don't have an obligation to let them keep, you know, playing the way they want to play. I think that's a very good point. Um, I mean, with respect to both the team and, uh, 
particularly in the case of a, you know, say a nonprofit association uh, with respect to your members, but I think this, you know, can probably apply to companies as well that, I mean, your obligation, I think, is to help those people learn and grow and adapt. Um, and, as, you know, it, at some point, if they're not going to, then there's some tough decisions <laughs> that have to be made. But, uh, but that, to me, that's the extent of your obligation is to help them do that. That's, that's part of why you exist. Um, but yeah, we uh, again and again, see organizations wrestle with that, uh, definitely. And it, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy one to, to handle when you're in the trenches with it. Well, this is, you know, as I knew it would be, uh, been just an, an incredibly um, useful um, conversation. Um, we, we've touched on some some items that uh, I think listeners can take action on right away in their own thinking about the whole membership economy, about the idea of the forever transaction and that underlying concept of the forever promise. As you noted, this is a, a learning show. I think listeners will have learned a lot, but um, we always like to turn to our guests towards the end of any interview and ask them a, a question around uh, their own lifelong learning, their, their personal learning experiences. And the way we usually phrase this, and I may, I may put a little bit of a nuance on it for you, is what is the one, one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? And I'll throw this out there. You don't have to take up this challenge if you don't want to, but I'm, I'm wondering if there is a, you know, a, a community, a subscription sort of based learning experience that you've participated in that you might uh, put in that, in that camp. Yeah. So, so I actually, I actually have, have two learning experiences I wanted to highlight one where I was a learner and one where I was a teacher. Um, the learner experience was when I went out on my own as a solopreneur, mm. um, as an independent consultant. And, you know, I've always been kind of a mainstream gal, right? I went, you know, I went to big, good schools and I worked at big companies and in very structured roles. And when I kind of stepped off of that path, I didn't know where to go. And there wasn't an obvious source for information, um, so I did a few things. I, I joined a, the women in consulting group where I learned a lot from regular meetings and, um, you know, kind of one-on-one, -on -one, you know, I'd asked people to have lunch with me or have coffee and tried to learn from them. And then I joined a more formal community. Um, in my case, it was Alan Weiss. Um, after reading, I read his book, the, um, Getting Started in Consulting and Million Dollar Consulting. And then I joined his community and I took a bunch of classes and I got to know, you know, we talked earlier about community and the power of community. Um, Alan is great and I've learned a huge amount from him, but I think I've learned even more from people that I've gotten to know through his community. Other people all over the world who have the same goals that I have, but who might be a little bit ahead of me in certain aspects of their model. And then, so that's kind of one, that was like a huge learning experience, like the learning, the learning curve was so steep and I was, you know, reading books and doing online classes and going to conferences and touching base with people and being in learning groups. Um, and then the teaching experience I, I alluded to was, um, I was asked by LinkedIn Learning to create a course on membership models uh, about right after, right around the time that the book came out. And I learned a tremendous amount about how to design a learning experience for digital consumption. Hmm. And I've, I've since created, that was my first course. I've created 10 courses with them. Uh, these are, you know, the video courses. Most of them are, you know, under an hour, you know, two, three, four minute chunks. 
Some of them have little quizzes. Some of them are for continuing credits. But learning all the different tips and tricks of how to educate adult learners who don't have to watch your content uh, was a huge um, growth experience for me. Well, and one of the things we will definitely do is uh, point folks to your uh, courses on LinkedIn Learning so that they can uh, access those. Um, We want to make sure that they know how to reach you in general, um, find out more about you, and of course, find out about how they can get the forever transaction. So where's the best place or places for folks to go if they want to know more about you, know more about the book, and, and possibly connect with you? Yeah, so um, I'm super easy to find online. Uh, RobbieKelmanBaxter.com uh, is my my main site. You can type in the name of the book, Forever Transaction, and go to that website or uh, you know get it on you know Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever indie books are sold. Um, support our indie bookstores right now. Indeed, yes, <laughs> uh, yes. And then um, I'm I'm very active on on um, social media, particularly on LinkedIn. Well, great. Well, Robbie, thanks so much for taking the time to to come back on to the Leading Learning Podcast and talk about the forever transaction and and just share your, your wisdom in general. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. That concludes the interview with Robbie Kelman Baxter. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 233. And the show notes will include the reflection questions. First, what is your forever promise? What is it your members or customers really wish you would do and keep doing? And are you using the right headline benefits to attract those people to you? Second, carve out some time to really study how LinkedIn works and ask what lessons from the LinkedIn model can we apply to our learning business? When you check out the show notes, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. If you're getting value out of what you hear, we'd be truly grateful if you would subscribe. It helps us get some data on the impact of what we're doing. We'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. That will put you in the right place. Jeff and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but even more importantly, reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Finally, consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter by going to leadinglearning.com slash Twitter, on Facebook at leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and on LinkedIn when you go there to study it at leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag leading learning on each of those channels. Wherever and however you do it, please do follow us and help spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.